Welcome back to the Eurocave podcast, Pastime Talking and Teaching History. My name is Andreas Holtberge and I will be your podcast co-host for this episode because I have with me Mikey de Vries. Welcome back, Mikey. Thank you, Andreas. I've, uh, I've heard that, you know, you needed some support. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and here I am. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, so today we will be talking about the concept of powerful knowledge in, in history, history education. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this comes as... Arthur Chapman from UCL in London has published uh, a book, edited a book. Uh, Knowing on the history in schools, powerful knowledge and the powers of knowledge. That's right. Uh, Mikey, when you first encountered the, um, the title and uh, the concept of powerful knowledge, you were a bit hesitant. Yeah, this idea of emphasizing knowledge and sort of uh, between quotations marks bringing knowledge back, it's I'm a bit hesitant with that idea. It brings for me this connotations of reactionary forces of bring knowledge back to the school kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. But like yeah, a little bit of like white old man. Well. Yeah. yeah. So I was a bit hesitant with embracing this idea. But then I started to read more into it and I understand that actually, you know, the aim of this movement, if you or this um, and Dauver, so to say, was really to use knowledge as an emancipatory act. So in order to empower students to perhaps critique, you know, the society in which we're living in or, or the status quo. So it had more of a social justice agenda to it that I initiated, initially expected. So now I'm a fan. All right. Well, we'll, we'll talk about all of that with, with Arthur and uh, one of the uh, other authors of the book, uh, Maria Iorio. So um, let's get to it. So as mentioned, we have with us today two guests here uh, on our podcast, Maria Giorgio and Arthur Chapman. Dr. Maria Giorgio is a Public History Weekly co-director. Her PhD thesis from UCL's Institute of Education focused on 17, 18-year-old Greek Cypriot students' understanding of differing historical accounts. Her research interests are in the purposes and dispositions of history education, including history in the classroom and in the public. Maria taught both in Cyprus and in the UK, teaching all ages from primary to tertiary education. She has worked as an education and heritage consultant, and has worked on the production of classroom materials. She has also worked as a teacher trainer. Arthur uh, Chapman is an associate professor in history education at the University College London, where he's also a member of the Holocaust Education Centre. He is also an editor of the uh, journal History Education Research and director of the open peer review blog Public History Weekly. So we're here, uh, especially because um, Arthur has edited a book, uh, which we can all access freely um, because it's an open access book by UCL Press. Uh, Knowing history in schools, powerful knowledge and the powers of knowledge. So I think a very appropriate question is then, of course, what is this power of knowing history? Uh, so uh, Arthur, do you dare to uh, give it a go and enlighten sure. us? 
Yeah, um, I mean, it's a, uh, the short answer is we had to write a book about it, so uh, <laughs> so one can refer to the book. But yes, uh, what does it actually mean? What's the outline? I mean, I think uh, maybe if I talk about the title a little bit, it might help. Um, we chose the the words very carefully, and it has begins with this phrase, "knowing history," which in a way is a bit of a strange phrase because it's a participle. You know, it's not a, it's not a noun. We're not saying uh, this. The book isn't called historical knowledge, and uh, uh, and that's trying to make a point really, which is that uh, um, I don't think you can reify knowledge. Right, you can't turn knowledge into a thing. It's not something that you can put in a box and pass from one person to the other as if it was just a collection of objects or a collection of information. Knowing is a relationship to the world. Um, so by knowing history, we mean understanding the world in a historical manner, um, not you know, simply imbibing uh, the soup called historical knowledge. It's not about an object, um, uh, but obviously, of course, to, to know history or to relate to, to, to the world in a historical manner uh, means to, um, to, to know things about the world, you know, so there are what we would call facts or propositions that, you know, you, you couldn't know a lot of history without knowing any facts or propositions about the world. But um, even that is much more complicated than it's often presented. History suffers like a lot of educational subjects from the fact that everyone thinks they know what it is. You know, we, every politician, every policymaker sat through a history lesson. Uh, quite often they think, you know, it's very straightforward and all the history needs to be about is making a list of the things that people must know. And all you need to do to have satisfactory had an education history in your education system is to enable metrics that show, you know, recall of this knowledge. and. We, we disagree completely with this. It's a mistaken way of approaching history. History is a mode of relating to the world, in my opinion. It has, um, and it's not the only one, of course. There are many ways of thinking about the past and of relating past to present and future. Um, the, the ones that we're talking about in this book are those linked to the discipline of history, um, which is a way of understanding the world through a certain way of asking questions, certain modes of inference, certain uses of evidence. And, Obviously, that has a certain history of its own, of course, which I know you're going to ask me about later in your questions, I think. I'm not so naive as to think that the only way to claim knowledge of the past is through the discourse of, um, of Western historical thinking. Good. Uh, I, I wanted to actually come back to your, to your book, uh, because the one thing that was Mike also mentioned, it's, it's, it's available for free. Uh, that's, that's very good. It's a welcome change, I think, in, in many ways there. Often you have to pay... Uh, big amounts to, to get your hands on the research, uh, recent research. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned you were tasked sort of with, with writing this book, but, but what is the ultimate aim? Is it related to the fact that it's also free? What do you, what do you hope it will achieve? Sure. I mean, so the, 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 the fact that it's free, I think, is part of the, um, you know, there are big debates in academia and, and, and in society about what should be done with knowledge, aren't there? Um, and we have knowledge industries um, uh, and intellectual copyright and you know all kinds of really vexed and troubling questions arise around knowledge particularly when it's produced in universities because to a large extent universities receive public funding so there's the question of you know if you charge for things sort of the product of public funding then there may be some questions to be asked there but then again on the other hand um, if you say we should make everything available freely um, that also raises political questions because not everyone can produce things you know, without charging for the cost of them. So, so there's a whole politics of knowledge around open access and freedom and so on in terms of accessing material. 
but yeah the truth is that a lot of academic material is is produced you know for some public benefit on the face of it but is inaccessible to many people because we all know the price of getting access to journals it costs an awful lot of money so UCL is committed to open so and UCL press paid for this book you know so there is an investment of money by the university in the book so you know, nothing is free in the sense it's got a cost of production but the university is very committed to this notion of open access uh, knowledge on a global scale so the press and all of the UCL journals are freely available so that's the institutional answer per personally I think it's great to make a book available in that way because you, you, know, you don't want to write a book and for it to have no impact because no one buys it and it's a nice idea to make a book available universally so it's you know it's downloadable anywhere but obviously i accept that the book is an english book you know we have contributions from from um, sweden we have contributions from new zealand um, but it comes out of english debates so even if it is universally freely available it may well be that it's got a certain cultural specificity because of its origin but we think this this intervention in an english debate has relevance beyond england because the disciplinary approach to history in England we often talk as if we invented it I'm not so naive as to think that there's a great paper by a Dutch academic Ari Wilschult on uh, I think it's called history at the, at the mercy of politicians or something like that and it's a comparative analysis in Germany the Netherlands and England over the last hundred years and I know that in all those countries and also in America and in Canada and in Cyprus and in many other places people have been debating what history education should look like. Should it be about the transmission of an agreed narrative framed politically, or should it be about something nearer to what academics understand history to be, which is a kind of discourse through which people critically examine and debate the past? Thank you very much. I mean, it's also, I just wanted to touch on this, that it, yeah, it, it, it certainly also uh, reflects, I think, the discussions that are taking place here in the Netherlands, for instance, and in other countries too. And just to plug in a bit with what we've done in the podcast before, actually, we had an episode before about the historical canons that are that have been developed in the Netherlands and is now sort of on the table in Belgium. And I think that's it's a similar discussion in many ways. Um, I've been very interested in the Dutch so the debates you've been having about canons and I think I don't know because I you know I, I don't know what it's like on the ground for teachers but I, I think that the Dutch development has been very interesting. So uh, when we go back to the discussion about uh, so this is kind of an example of what history perhaps should not be or at least what the what the book is not advocating for because the book is advocating for um, an academic understanding of historical knowledge and of um, history as a disciplinary a subject, let's say, as a disciplinary um, and way of knowing. So this sort of comes forward from an idea of Michael Young in around 2008, in which he kind of like makes this distinction about disciplinary knowledge being the powerful knowledge, being the quote unquote better knowledge, and then um, everyday knowledge. And he uses an example for geography in particular, which I think is a good makes it very understandable what he means with everyday knowledge and then this uh, powerful knowledge or better knowledge namely in geography you would have maybe have a, if i step here outside on my street i know this is my bus and it brings me through there that's my everyday knowledge my everyday understanding of public transport and then more of geography specific powerful knowledge would be that I maybe understand why the public transport in the Netherlands is very different than the public transport in 
maybe a particular state in the United States. That would give, that would, for me to understand that, I need to have some understanding of what geography does as a subject. Could you uh, give us such an example for history? So what is the distinction between everyday knowledge in history as a, as a way of knowing? And what is then this powerful knowledge, this disciplinary knowledge? Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated question and we only scratch the surface in the book. I mean, there's, a, there's so just to introduce some of the complexity before, I, I promise I will answer the question. Um, I mean, the, the truth of it is that, that, that uh, history is only one of a number of ways in which societies, um, if you like, manage time and think about change. I'm very struck always by Jon Rusin, the German um, didactician and historian and philosopher of history, who has this, talks a lot about historical consciousness and, and the fact that history is a way of dealing with time and change and lots of troubling things about, you know, human lives. We, we will die, everything ultimately disappears, you know. <laughs> so so uh, this causes anxiety and issues about how you manage all of this. And this is true at an individual level and at a social level and, and, and at a, and a, um, many levels. And history is only one of the many discourses and resources we can draw upon to deal with the human predicament of living in time. Uh, and it would be very foolish for historians to tell everybody else that the only way to think about it is the way that history, history as a discipline does. So there are lots of everyday ways of thinking about time and change, which uh, serve particular purposes, which are different from the purposes of, of history often. So sometimes it's about affirmation of, of group cohesion. Um, you know, there are various things people do when they talk about time. What history offers is a way of um, of trying to see things that, that maybe move beyond these other purposes. So the point of history is not to affirm identity. The point of history is to try and clarify insofar as we can, you know, what happened or what has changed. And these are questions which are subject to interpersonal controls, which give the answers a certain kind of rigor. So if I want to make a claim in history, I have to be able to provide evidence. My grandmother does not have to be able to provide evidence. You know, there, there are certain epistemic aspects of the discipline of history that give it uh, qualities which are different from other forms of knowing. That doesn't necessarily mean they're better because people talk about the past for many different reasons. It'd be foolish, as I say, to insist on empirical controls for everything. When people say they love old objects, you know, they're, they're making an aesthetic observation actually. And to start talking about footnotes is probably irrelevant unless you want to prove it's actually old. So I think that um, historical knowledge is only one way of engaging with the past. What are the powers of it? Um, the, it's a double-edged sword. You know, sometimes historical knowledge is disempowering. <laughs> you know, if let's say you have a self-image as a nation uh, built on um, mythologies, built on propaganda, built on rituals of affirmation. Uh, you know, if you think I'm, my country is great, we're all good, we've never done bad things, sometimes historical knowledge will be unforgiving, it will point to the things you don't want to know, the things your ancestors did not talk about, you know, so in a way historical knowledge can feel disempowering. It can also feel disempowering when, um, when you know, people talk about uh, archives and, and so on, because what are archives, what are our records in history, they are in many ways uh, linked to power and privilege. So, you know, uh, in, in my, on my road, there is one house, which is old. It's an old house from a, of a poor person. It's a single story building. 
and I'm always really struck when I walk past it by the fact that it's the only one. The houses of the poor do not survive because they're made of such poor quality housing material that they are destroyed or they collapse. You know, so this one old house, whenever I look at it, I feel sorry for it. Where are the other old houses of the poor? You know, the archives contain structural biases and so on. So history can be disempowering and that the record is silent on so many important things. But how can it be empowering? How can it be powerful? It gives you the tools to think about time and change in a rigorous, robust, analytical manner. And that is sometimes very useful. So I can think about my family, think about where I come from, think about my city. I can do that by talking to my grandmother. I can do it by by listening to popular songs that celebrate my country, or I can, I can do it in a way that's gonna bring me to new understandings by interrogating the evidence of the past. I can start with what isn't there. Why are there no old houses on my street apart from this one? Why is that one built of stone? And you know, history opens up new possibilities for understanding yourself and, and, uh, and others and the world. And I think that is empowering. Um, also as well, I think because history is an inquiry into why things have happened and how they are, that there can be a sort of wisdom that comes out of historical learning, by which I mean, if you study many cases of how the world works, maybe you have a little bit more wisdom about how the world can work. You know, I think that knowledge, knowledges are technologies for changing things. They're technologies for understanding things. And therefore, ultimately, they have practical uses, I think. So I think history can help you understand how the world works a bit better than not studying history can. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do an attempt to kind of summarize this on the basis of your answer. If I'm wrong, please let me know. So maybe my everyday knowledge is going out of my street and seeing indeed that old house what I, it does not tell me and what historical knowledge does tell me is a I can prove it's really old b I can understand that the powers that are at play here why this is the only old house of the poor in this in this sense is still alive I, I can ask questions about what is not here and I can also understand new possibilities because I have a better understanding as to why is this the only house of the poor old house of the poor that's still here on my street and I can prove these things but I'm also really trying to ask those questions as to why is that the case in order to create new possibilities I, I think that's an excellent way of putting it thank you okay. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to 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 go back to that topic of of how um this this statement of sort of bring knowledge back um when when Mikey first uh, came to hear about this, this project and this book, she was a bit apprehensive about it um, because it has these conservative connotations that we, we talked about earlier. Um, so my question really is sort of what would be your, yeah, what would be your response to, to teachers or researchers who, who have that initial apprehension? And also sort of what, what did you do or how, how did you try to avoid this kind of tendency when you were, you were working on this project? Yes, so you're, you're referring to the name of Michael Young's 2007 book. Uh, it's a contribution to the sociology of the curriculum and it's called Bringing Knowledge Back In. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I can't talk for Michael, so I won't talk about that book, but um, we didn't use any such terminology <laughs> in, uh, in our book. Um, and I don't think he actually means that either. So just to give you a bit of background on that, uh, Michael Young, who's a social realist in curriculum theory and who we engage with in the book, 
Um, he used to be uh, very much part of um, a kind of what was called the new sociology of knowledge in the early 1970s. And we need to talk about people like Pierre Bourdieu, if we're going to talk about that, the French sociologists and so on. And uh, the new sociology was very interested in social control and how um, knowledge was linked to hierarchy and uh, what Bourdieu calls strategies of distinction. You know, you use knowledge almost like cultural capital to exclude people. So, yeah, I mean, when Michael's moved away from that, but not because he doesn't think that still happens, right? He distinguishes between what he calls the knowledge of the powerful, which is essentially knowledge as a, dis as a discrimination strategy, as a distinction strategy, and what he calls powerful knowledge. So the idea of canons, of fixed lists of, you know, how things are and how things should be done is not really what we're talking about at all. We're talking about the power powers of knowledge to liberate and to, and to disrupt and to shake things up as much as anything else. I don't think talking about knowledge and knowing is a conservative thing to do because I don't think we know what it actually means. It's not about returning to how things were done. You know, if we ask the question, how do you create a, a curriculum for history and a mode of pedagogy that really does empower pupils to know and engage with the world in critical ways? I don't think we actually have the answer. So in no way is it about going back to something. I think it's, it's, it's a demand for a new agenda. That's what I would say. Okay, that, that's very clear, but I, I feel still that um, there is potentially the danger that these more reactionary and conservative forces in society kind of hijack, you know, this very idealistic and um, a great, almost like a social justice agenda to this project. So the question is, how can we make sure that um, this very idealistic agenda is not hijacked? Yes, so I, I mean, I, I don't have the answer to that because I said a lot of these things are questions to which we need answers. But I think the book is trying to prevent precisely what you describe. So that so um, in, in within the history education community for some time, it goes back beyond Michael Young's work. So it goes back, I think you can go, you can go back to the 70s if you like on it. This approach to history education as, as a disciplinary approach has been around for a while. And um, in lots of ways, you know, you could argue there is a, there is a danger of it being hijacked. And uh, what we're trying to do in this book is to is to clearly lay out, you know, what we think the requirements are for an approach to knowledge that is liberating, is empowering, is disciplinary, um, and we're we're arguing against various answers to the question, what is what does learning history mean? To try and rearticulate the need for it to have for various features. So, what are those features? I think it's got to be about enabling people to ask questions and to answer those questions through open inquiry. And you know, once you give people the empower people to ask questions, you're not controlling what the questions are, right? Once you enable people to pursue those questions through research inquiries, you're not determining the answers they're going to have. So I think that um, you know, part of the answer is ensuring the history that we teach is inducting people into a way of knowing the world. Um, because th that isn't about you know fixed answers. It's about asking questions in, in ways that have rigor, robustness, and so on. And I really like this idea of asking questions as some kind of empowering act. Um, but then um, maybe to answer such a, the questions that students could potentially ask about the world around them, the ideas, of course, that this goes that this is more it goes a step up from everyday knowledge. So you complement your everyday knowledge with theoretical knowledge. 
So there is still some kind of a danger that it becomes one directional, that this theoretical knowledge comes from the teacher and that students are still somewhat seen as empty vessels, like, for example, Paulo Freire has kind of like called the banking system of education. So the, the idea that the teacher is the all-knowing person in the room and they would then transmit or convey that theoretical knowledge to, to the students. So what do you think are maybe some strategies that teachers can use in order to avoid such an approach to teaching history in a powerful manner? Well, I mean, I think that teachers do know things that kids don't know and that we need to help them to come to see these things. But I don't think of it as about being a banking concept or depositing ideas in people's minds. And also, I would say as well that kids bring insights that teachers never thought of, you know, so I don't want to say that teachers have everything. But the fact is that, you know, in your everyday in your everyday world, you know, things about day to day relationships, about your communities, many things you will know that teachers won't know. But teachers may know something, let's say, about the wider historical structures that have shaped the city in which you live. And some of these things, they, they need to convey them to you. So some aspect of history education is about conveying information and concepts and understandings. But the point is not simply to pass them on so they become, you know, the contents of the children's minds. I'm a great believer in, in, in constructivist um, psychology. I don't necessarily mean constructivist uh, philosophy, but the psychology. I think people learn by... You know, as Piaget said, there's this process of assimilation and accommodation. You know, you have concepts in your mind. Children are never empty vessels. They've always got ideas. Teachers are trying to help students come to new conceptualizations of things. But it's never a question of simply transferring the teacher's understanding. It's always a dialogue between the children's thinking and, and the new learning. Um, but yes, I don't want to shy away from the fact that I think the teachers do know things. Uh, I don't think this means a banking concept of education. I think what you do is you help to come, help people to come to understand how things might be seen. But a lot of the things you, you want to communicate are, remain open. So in history, for example, you know, why things happened is always debatable. And there is legitimate room for children to argue and debate and come to new insights about that. Other aspects of historical learning are much more open as well. What is the significance of something in history? This is something that children would be able to bring insights to, let's say, based on their community experience that will actually open up new things for the teachers as well. So I think, you know, it's I don't want to say that teachers don't know anything that they don't want children to come to know. Right. We do know things about how the world works, about, you know, trade structures, imperial structures, things that are brought about contemporary cities. You know, we know these things. There are things we don't know. There are experiences we don't have that our students can help us understand. But I think that all education is dialogic anyway, to one extent or another. So I, I wanted to actually, it's a nice bridge to, to I think, well, our last question to you, uh, Arthur, and, and maybe this is also a good time to bring Maria into the discussion as well, because you both have a lot of teaching experience. Um, so when, when teachers are, are basically trying to engage with your book and trying to translate it into ideas for their own classroom practice, to teach history in this powerful way how what is a good strategy for them to do that how how concretely how what should they where should where do we start <laughs> yes and i think that the chapter by uh, all, all the chapters in the book will help with this but i mean the chapter by my colleague alison kitson might be particularly relevant for that um but i mean yeah so what so i think you know, what do teachers do i think teachers build curriculum so they build courses of learning over time for children and too often we tend to talk at a smaller scale talk about lessons you know but I think what you're doing is you're building a curriculum. So, so you have to think about how you're going to structure that over time. 
So what are what are the what are the understandings of the world? What is the knowledge in the conventional sense, if you like, that I want children to come to? Uh, by the time they leave, they finish, you know, year three, year four. By the time they leave my school, so what is the content knowledge I want them to come to understand? What are the conceptual um, questions I want them to be able to ask? What are the modes of reasoning I want to be able to build? Make a list of all of these things and try and be clear about what you think they look like at different stages. And then you have to think about a sequence learning experiences to bring those things about. Thank you very much. I, I, as I mentioned in the beginning, I wanted also maybe bring Maria into the discussion here. So Maria, you've been you've been listening, and I don't know if you if you have anything to add on, on the sort of the concreteness of of how we can translate this into the classroom practice. Yes. So uh, I absolutely agree with uh, Arthur. Um, Alison's, uh, let's say, um, a formula or scheme is a very powerful one because it gives a kind of uh, a guideline on uh, teachers on how to bring powerful knowledge in the classroom. So she, she suggests that powerful knowledge um, enables students to do three things. So it's very concrete and very specific. The first one is to discover new ways of seeing the world. Um, the second, to engage in society's conversations and debates about itself. And the third, to understand grounds for accepting or rejecting uh, knowledge claims. And then each one of these things breaks down to more specific um, aims. So uh, educators, by default, by engaging with these aims, for example, enabling students to see that things haven't always been as uh, they are now, or uh, that things, let's say, uh, World War I has not been inevitable. By having the same in mind, educators by default do powerful uh, uh, knowledge. Thank you, uh, Maria. That's a very nice way to put it. So uh, like uh, Arthur at the beginning of our conversation mentioned that this idea of powerful knowledge should be or is intended to be sort of universal or not only constrained to, um, to, to England or the UK in this sense. So we were wondering, considering that you come from a different um, background, do you agree with that? Because maybe this idea of powerful knowledge, it's emerged in a British context, which arguably we can say there might be more of a social class division in, in the UK than perhaps in other European countries. And maybe this idea of uh, knowledge of the powerful might resonate better in the UK than perhaps in other European countries or other countries at large. You are familiar with the UK context and also you're from Cyprus yourself. So what do you think? How transferable is this idea actually about these different futures and powerful knowledge? So if we translate powerful knowledge as the knowledge of the powerful, and there is a danger that it might be read in this uh, way, um, I would say that hierarchy and social control does not resonate just within the UK. Um, in fact, I would argue that power and uh, el elitism uh, exist everywhere. And I would argue that this is even more the case in uh, ex-colonies. So in Cyprus, one of the results of this uh, colonial past has been the private schools. Now, the private schools, not all of them, but most of them use English, some French um, as the main language. So immediately we have a kind of class hierarchy and elitism. Um, 
And also these uh, schools are the schools that they produce those people who would uh, go to key positions to take important decisions for the country. So yes, Cyprus doesn't, uh, it's a very different context from UK, but I would say that uh, power and class does exist very much here, uh, also in part because of the colonial past. Now, if we read powerful knowledge as, uh, as we should read, uh, as it should be read, um, that is knowledge of powers, how transferable is it? Um, <laughs> I'm tempted to say that maybe Cyprus has all those characteristics that make it not receptible to the to powerful knowledge in the sense that the system here is very closed. Um, so there are many canons. We have single textbooks and these textbooks are more or less narrations by a third uh, person all named author. So where sources exist, they would support the main narrative. Um, the hidden curriculum, which basically uh, does what Seisha's describes as the best history approach or collective memory uh, are a big part of uh, history in schools. Then our system is um, uh, very teacher-centered, but at the same time, there is this oxymoron that teachers are not valued enough, not enough training is given. In fact, uh, very often uh, training is not obligatory. So very often in trainings, we see the same people. So yeah, Cyprus might seem uh, that it's one of those contexts that might not be a receptible to uh, powerful knowledge. However, we've seen teachers do the kind of teaching that would fall under the under powerful knowledge. So I think it's important to flag out that the differences in, uh, in different settings, countries should not become a, a ticket, a license, if you like, for, um, for saying that this cannot, uh, I don't like the word transferred here <laughs> uh, because things should never be copy and paste. Um, but then again, powerful knowledge as part of future tree is, is flexible, is open, um, is culturally sensitive. So I think we've seen teaching in Cyprus that allow us to have powerful knowledge uh, within our own setting. I like how you're basically saying that um, maybe it is indeed a very different situation, but that even makes it more necessary to include uh, an approach to history as uh, we just discussed with regard to the to considering um, powerful knowledge and the, the powers of knowing. Um, because Absolutely, it, yes. Um, sorry to interrupt, but exactly, I couldn't have put it in better words. I mean, the fact that Cyprus has these characteristics makes it even more necessary to have good and rigorous history in the classroom. Um, we just would like to ask, I guess, two more questions, if that's OK. And perhaps then uh, this question is more about the chapter that um, uh, you wrote together for the book, which is about historical accounts and more or less about conflicting or contradicting historical accounts as an example of 
what could be considered historical knowledge or an aspect of powerful historical knowledge. So why would you consider that this approach to, to um, engaging with uh, conflicting historical accounts would be empowering? So what is, what is it that you do differently than regular history teaching? Um, yeah, I mean, so I think that uh, accounts is quite interesting because we're, we're, we're in a, working in a niche area there. Most people who do research on historical thinking concepts or history as a way of knowing talk about things like evidence or causation. And what we're talking about there is something slightly different, which is uh, developing children's understandings of why it is uh, conflicting versions of the past exist. And why are there different stories about the past? Uh, in any given society, but also helping to develop their understandings of how different stories are different. You know, what's the difference between this film by Alexander the Great and this history book? But also when you're talking about accounts, you're trying to help children uh, have some critical purchase on the conflicting stories they will encounter. So when there, when there are, when, when more than one story is offered, how do you sort that out? How do you decide, as it were, who to believe? Though it's never as simple as that. And I think this is, very clearly aligns with the notion of empowering um, young people and, and old people, anyone who learns history, because the truth is we're surrounded by stories. I like to use the term multi-storied, you know, it gives you the lots of stories on top of each other, many stories at once. There, there are lots of conflicting stories about, about our world and helping people understand why different stories exist and how you can adjudicate between them has to be empowering. Anyway, Maria, what, what do you think? Um, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and I would like to build on that by reminding that um, historical accounts, uh, contrasting or not, are uh, the medium of history. So when we discuss about what um, are the criteria or the principles, when we bring powerful history in the classroom about accounts, in essence, we are discussing about powerful knowledge in teaching history as a whole, uh, because historical narratives, historical accounts is what, what brings us um, history. So I just wanted to, to, to um, uh, remind us that. Um, now, if we see historical accounts as a um, secondary concept. So if we see it separately uh, and we need to um, say something specific about historical accounts, I would say that one of the powerful things that this framework uh, does is to help us evaluate accounts. And one of the powers in evaluating accounts is evaluating them as positions of power. So all narratives or accounts or, or, or histories in essence are written from the from a position of uh, power. And it is hugely emancipatory, both for students and teachers themselves to be able to analyze and evaluate and examine and see through what we see, uh, what, what we refer to as positionality in our field and say, um, when was this written? Why was it written? What was the broad um, context? Who was the receiver and uh, so on. And I think that especially at the time of echo chambers, uh, this is a, a huge power and our students should be equipped to deal with these um, accounts. I would also like to point out that 
by doing this, we move away from um, multi-perspectivity, which often um, collapses to a kind of everyone is right, everyone has their own opinion. So again, by employing historical literacy and examining rigorously these accounts, we can talk about validity. What is valid? Arthur talked before about footnotes. So how do we know? Where are the footnotes? Who wrote them? Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It, it absolutely does. And I have a very interesting point to the last one on, on the on multi-perspectivity as well. Mike, I think you, you Yeah, because a that's there. a big thing in the Netherlands, multi-perspectivity. And I like what you say. It's not necessarily about multi-perspectivity. It's also about validity. So we also have to understand the, the positions of power that come into these different narratives. So almost like narrative competence, I would say, of, or under, a critical understanding of the narrative that's being written from from the positions and, and understanding the power structures there as well. So, uh, and, I, and I can totally, you know, grasp this idea that that is empowering if you understand that. And if you, if you have insight in, in that, um, how that works and um, have a better understanding, I would say of, of all the narratives that you are encountering with uh, on your daily, in your daily life that we do nowadays. Yeah. yeah. If you scroll in your social media Absolutely. and whatnot. So with, I think with that, um, I think to just to 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 some, wrap this up a bit, we we congratulate you again with um, with uh, uh, the the book the, that is already out, and we encourage, of course, our listener to yeah, yeah. download their free copy. That's uh, that's added bonus. And we haven't really discussed uh, the different chapters. We have discussed yeah a little bit of the introduction and then. Um, the chapter that you wrote together. I, I just want to say, and we discussed, I think it's chapter two of Allenson's uh, work on, on sort of conceptualizing it. And I utterly enjoyed chapter 10 also, which is about uh, in, uh, thinking about indigenous knowledge and how can we also consider indigenous knowledge as a powerful way of knowing within history education. So definitely want to give the, uh, give the chapter 10 a shout out here on, on our podcast as well. <laughs> I think you have a last question, right? I mean, the, the last most question, important question. The last question is really just sort of a, as a nice running off here. Um, uh, what what did you enjoy most about this process of, of authoring this book? Uh, you've you've been contributing with a chapter, Arthur. You've been editing it, and and what do you hope it will bring to the, to your readers, essentially? Well, the book started off as a as a as a symposium that Maria and I organised at a conference, uh, and I think you know. Um, when, when you bring a, di a di when you initiate a dialogue, the, the joy of it is actually the exchange of ideas. You know, so it was great having this symposium, bringing together academics with different perspectives, and the whole book is is a dialogue. You know, because Michael Young is a sociologist of curriculum, so the book is, if you like, a dialogue between the ideas of history educators and broadly understood. So one of our contributors is a is a is a history uh, history teacher in a school. We've got. Um, somebody from New Zealand, we've got someone from, from um, Sweden. But yeah, so it's a dialogue between history educators and a sociologist of curriculum. And that doesn't happen very often, you know? We tend to be in our, in our, in our specialized kind of trenches, don't we? All the history education people talking to each other, but this book is an is a interdisciplinary dialogue. To some extent, it's an international dialogue. I would have to accept it's largely English. I apologize in advance for that. Of course, though, Maria and I wrote a chapter together and we've been talking to each other for a, a, a long time, you know? So, and I think, um, yeah, for me, it's dialogue because you never know entirely where it's going to end up. Maria, how about you? 
Um, absolutely. This has been a very interesting uh, journey born out of a conference and then having Michael Young uh, with us uh, and bringing all this knowledge together, working with uh, people in uh, different contexts. Um, for me, I think the most exciting part of this, uh, of being engaged in this uh, book was that we, I, I feel we came into a position that we attempted to reframe dichotomies. And by doing so, we attempted to use this, this, um, this framework of power, um, powerful knowledge in a meaningful way that goes beyond dichotomies of, um, um, let's say, skills and sub substantive knowledge or uh, child-centered approaches and disciplinary approaches in a way that it's, it's meaningful, in a way that is um, flexible and in a way that is also um, culturally responsive. I mean, Shinan and Davis in the book illustrated that very nicely. So for me, it was exciting to be part of a book that in, in contrast to much of what is going on out there does not advocate for something set and fixed or a canon, but suggests to open up and gives powerful knowledge as an act of, um, of balancing, if you like, balancing skills and substantive knowledge and seeing what the questions are, as Arthur said, and seeing what is what can be best used to um, answer that. So yes, and of course, co-authoring with uh, Arthur, who has been my supervisor, has been a pleasure to co-author as colleagues. It was absolutely a pleasure. With that, we thank you very much for, for joining us today. And uh, yeah, have a, have a wonderful um, uh, evening. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for your thank questions you and for your interest. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. So with this, we conclude a really interesting discussion with Arthur Chapman and Maria Iorio on powerful knowledge in history education. It's a new concept that is starting uh, to make some waves in the field of history education. We particularly like it also for the notion that it can sort of restore a bit of a status back to, to our discipline as a, as a discipline as it is. And also to, to, to history educators and history teachers, uh, giving them back a bit of the status perhaps that they, they have in their profession. Mikey, what's your thoughts on the episode? I couldn't uh, say it any better, Andreas. I am all for you know, valuing teachers and um, also valuing the subject of history and how important it is to have historical knowledge and to consider history as a powerful way of knowing.